0: So what teams try to do, and Al Davis did this, Joe Parcells did this, which then gave it to Belichick, is you set up a category of okay, for us to compete next year, we must have these five things. We need these things, we want these other things. And you just start working off your list. It would be the same principle for any business. You know, what must we do to achieve success next year? Those are the three things. What do we want to do next year to achieve? What do we need to do?
1: What's up, everybody? I'm Michael Elkins, and welcome to a brand new 2021 season of the Quarter 4 Podcast. We've got a great season of guests lined up for you, and our season premiere is no exception. In this episode, we bring you Michael Lombardi and A.J. Vaynerchuk. If you're familiar with sports, or sports and business, or just business in general, you're probably familiar with both of these individuals. They are both goats in the industry— this episode was recorded as part of a seminar put on by the Wharton School of Business Alumni Association, where Michael and AJ talked about the business of the NFL and the business of sports in general. This is a great episode with tons of information. I'm so excited to have this as our season premiere. You can also listen to Michael and AJ, who individually did this podcast a little while ago. Both those episodes are still available. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what's a, what is a great season premiere, and I hope you enjoy our 2021 season. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me, everybody. And welcome to our panel this evening, Inside the Business of the NFL. I want to first start off by talking about one of our lead sponsors, Sports Epreneur. I actually use uh, this group. They're some of my good friends. They actually did my website. And The company covers the intersection between entrepreneurship and sports with a very high-end content platform. So if you're looking to push content that talks about your business but also brings sports into it with a little bit of passion, some flair, and something a little different, then Sports Epreneur is definitely for you. And you can find Sports Epreneur at sports, S-P-O-R-T-S-E, the letter E, dot I-O. That's sports, the letter E, dot I-O. Now, let me introduce you to our panelists. Our first panelist is Michael Lombardi. Michael is a former NFL general manager and three-time Super Bowl winning executive after 30 years working for the New England Patriots, San Francisco 49ers, the Oakland Raiders, and the Cleveland Browns. He writes a column for The Athletic and hosts his own podcast, The GM Shuffle. Lombardi is also the author of Gridiron Genius, where he provides the blueprint that makes a successful organization click and win and the mistakes unsuccessful organizations make that keep them on the losing side. We're really pleased to have Michael here as part of the panel. Our second panelist is A.J. Vaynerchuk. A.J. is the co-CEO of Vayner Sports and oversees the company's entire operation. In 2009, prior to founding Vayner Sports, he and his brother Gary Vaynerchuk started Vayner Media, an advertising agency. While working on Vayner Media, A.J. was an active angel investor, counting Uber and Venmo as part of his successful startup portfolio. He's currently a proud board member of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Thank you both for doing this uh, while we're in the heart of NFL Free Agency. I know this is a busy time for both of you. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to the Wharton alumni uh, who are on this call and on this panel from all over the country, including South Florida and Boston. Thank you for joining us as well. So AJ, I'm going to start with you. The NFL Free Agency, you guys have a lot of clients that have been out there. I know we're maybe not in the thick of it anymore, but a lot of talk about the salary cap dropping, what have you seen in free agency here in 2021?
2: Free agency has definitely been interesting. Um, you know, it's been pretty fascinating for us. We had two of our clients, Leonard Williams and Allen Robinson, receive the franchise tag. Um, obviously, we got Leonard's deal with the Giants done, and Allen is still under the tag. He's recently signed that. Um, a few other clients of ours have signed. I would say probably the biggest trend that I've seen, um, maybe as a reflection of the decrease in salary cap, but and I haven't crunched the numbers, but I feel like a lot of players are coming back. Um, I've seen a lot of players resign. A lot of players resign on one-year deals. Obviously, the one-year deal concept is pretty rampant, just because the idea that the salary cap should bounce back. And so, I think those are the two themes that I've seen the most, just in terms of um, a lot more players staying home and a lot of players, you know, opting for you know the one-year opportunity so they can get another bet, like the apple once the uh, league and the salary cap. Recoup some of those dollars lost from the pandemic.
1: Right. And so, Michael, from the executive side, I mean, you handled free agency for, you know, 30 years or however long it's been around. What have you seen here in the 2021 free agency group?
0: Well, you know, I think this is probably the unique market that's ever been because of the, you know, the players and the owners are partners in the deal and they, the players have suffered through the COVID losses and we've never seen a cap decrease. And it's really was unfair to everyone that there was no planning, uh, that who could have expected the cap was going to decrease, you know? So this was truly the only market that I've ever seen where there were teams working desperately to get below the cap that really weren't involved in free agency. So it was truly like what we learned in economics 101 in high school, you know, there was huge supply, low demand, and that caused the market to really have a, a huge variance. I think the deals, now AJ did a great deal with Leonard Williams, and there's a g- lot of great deals out there. But I think on a whole, I think most agents would agree these deals are probably 20% lighter had this been a market where we had uh, a, a cap that increased, if we had at uh, the new TV contract, and everything was staying pretty much the same without COVID. This has been a depressed market, and the teams have benefited from it, those that had the cap room.
1: So, you know, you mentioned about the market and market efficiency. So I'm going to ask you, Michael, first, and then turn it back over to you, AJ. Michael, you wrote in The Athletic and you talked about it on GM Shuffle about the concept of, you know, teams having must-haves, needs, and wants. It was in the context of the Patriots. But I think there's an interesting discussion to have there both in the NFL but in business too. Can you expand on the the must-have, the need, and the want concept from the executive
0: side? Yeah, you know I was, I've been really fortunate in my NFL career. I've worked for some really talented people and and obviously Belichick and and Al Davis are two that come to mind, Bill Walsh. But when you're when you're an end and when your business ends or the quarter ends and you have to evaluate, you have to do an autopsy of what just occurred. Uh, you've got you got to collect that data and then what you must be able to do is you got to ask yourself the question, for us to be successful, what has to happen? And that that goes into what we call the must area. You know, we mu- if we don't get this done, if we don't get, uh, satisfy these needs, we're never going to be able to compete next year. And then you have the want area. Well, we want to improve in this area. You know, the, excuse me, the need area. We want to improve in the need area. We have a need. We could play the way it is, but we need to get better. And then we have the want, which is... Like, you know, we need to get a better punt returner. We want one, but maybe we are not be able to get there. So what teams try to do, and Al Davis did this, Bill Parcells did this, which then gave it to Belichick, is you set up a category of, okay for us to compete next year, we must have these five things. We need these things. We want these other things. And you just start working off your list. It would be the same principle for any business. You know, what must we do to achieve success next year? Those are the three things. What do we want to do next year to achieve? What do we need to do?
1: So, AJ, let me ask you kind of the same question, but sort of from like the agent perspective, right? Are you, when you're looking at to put your players in certain places, are you looking at teams and saying, you know, here's their must-haves, here's a need, and how does that play out for you guys on the agency side?
2: Yeah, I think I think it depends on the player's success up until that point. I think, um, you know, if you take a player – that has been extremely successful in their career, I don't think you're looking at the team's um, depth chart per se from the player's perspective in terms of their opportunity to be successful. I think you do look at it from an, a leverage perspective to understand, okay, you know, to what Michael just described, if this is something they must have, you know, that gives you the opportunity to maybe squeeze extra dollars out of them. I think when looking at a team's um, must-have, want, and need, it becomes particularly relevant i think at the uh, the next levels below the blue chip free agent because you know especially like i mentioned this year if you got a player that is taking a one year deal you want to see what system do i fit in what depth chart looks good to me what are the opportunities do i believe i can go in there and excel and so i think you are looking at those things i think it's just from a different lens you know i think blue chips you're looking at it from the lens of how to negotiate the best contract And then for other players, I think you're looking for the best opportunity to be successful with the idea that maybe you can parlay that into a better contract. Um, So that's how I see it.
1: So, Michael, one of the other things you mentioned recently, I can't remember if it was on GM Shuffle or in The Athletic, was the concept that free agency is a lot like Wall Street. I think you talked about Warren Buffett. I was wondering if you, and, and to me, that fits right in line with business and sports, like colliding. If you could talk a little bit about how you view it, from an asset management Wall Street perspective?
0: Well, I mean, it, it really is. We're talking about you have to evaluate. A player is no different than a stock, right? You've got to evaluate them. you got to put the actual grade on them. AJ's job is to make as much money for the player that he possibly can. It's, it's not to make the team, to do a friendly deal for the team. It's to make the most for his player. You as a club representative, you've got to improve your team But you also have to make sure your finances are in order. So you can't overextend yourself. So I always viewed my job as a little bit like a bank loan officer. You know, if I go and pay AJ's client way too much money and he's can't back the services, you know, I may be able to satisfy my must list, but I'm going to have to get rid of this player in a year because he's just where I'm leveraged too far out uh, and I'm not going to get the return on the dollar. So and then you've got to be able to play a calculated game of chicken. Right. You know, every agent will tell you, I've got three more teams interested in the player. You've got to figure out, is that true or is that false? You know, they're going to tell you, I've got three deals better than this one. You've got to figure out whether that's true or false. You've got to kind of play the game. Okay, how do teams think? How do they behave? You know, like I'll take an example. You know, Dory Jackson just signed a huge contract with the Giants. And everybody wrote in the paper the next day that, well, he had a lot of big, you know, the, the Eagles were going to be a team that was going to be strong and contend for him. You know, that, that's just if you fought, if you fell for that, you know, you're basically going to lose your poker hand really quickly because there was no chance the Eagles were going to go pay thirty nine million over three years for a player who's been played in two years, who's only had seven passes broken up, who can't stay healthy. You know, Could you imagine them going to a press conference and saying, we just signed this guy when half their team was hurt last year? So you have to be like that. You've got to be very analytical. And as Buffett did, you've got to know all the teams that you're competing against and how they think and how they behave. So it's really, and and that's where Belichick gains such a unique advantage because he sees it through a broker's eyes. He sees it through an investment banker's eyes. He never falls in love with the stock. He only falls in love with what the number is. You know, AJ wants you to fall in love with the player. He wants you to be desperate. And so you'll pay him more money. If you have ability to have an appetite and we say, no, that I can't do that. That's way too that's well, we're out on that. You know, then you become a better deal maker. You know, there's certain you know, I mean Buffett doubled down on Amazon. He bought it at eighteen dollars a share, he bought it at eighteen hundred dollars a share. Sometimes you gotta pay for things, and sometimes you just have to walk away from things. So AJ, from
1: your perspective, right? On the agent side, I would imagine you're trying to drive up market value. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, how you're viewing things from the sort of Wall Street valuation lens, but on the agency side.
2: Yeah, I think that um, to Michael's point, you know, the thing that I have found, because my business did not start, my career did not start in the business of football, right? My business started more in Fortune 500, more companies that were on the stock market And for me personally, what I found to be such an advantage in the business of football when negotiating on a player's behalf is you just have this world of data and it's all out there, right? I can look up what a team has done, what a general manager has done in terms of how they've spent at a position, the contracts they've done, the timing of those contracts. You're able to pattern behavior and look at that and you're able to do that across all 32 teams. So That's such a big leverage point in other forms of business there is no directory there's no login for the nflpa and the union to see all these public contracts right for example my first business an ad agency when i was negotiating with pepsi or unilever or general electric i wasn't able to go into some log and see every contract they've ever done with every vendor but in football you have that so i think that's a big advantage and i think data and analytics is important i think it does play similar to a stock market in that regard and yeah like michael said of course there are tactics. There are leverage, you know, that you could do. It's a game of poker. Um, but I, I think the biggest advantage is every transaction that a team does is on the record and it's public and it's accessible. And I think if an agent understands how to take information and process it, um, that's a huge advantage in this business.
1: So when you're looking at the information, AJ, and you're trying to analyze where the deals are, are you looking? Are you from the agency side? I think a lot of people always wonder who reaches out to who first. I mean, how does that? How does that happen from the agency side? Is it you wait for the team? I mean, or is it case by case? Case by case. It's
2: case, by case. I think you're going to have situations where teams will reach out on players and you're going to have situations where you're reaching out to the team. Um, every situation is different. And the pacing of that conversation and, and the communication um, is highly dependent on the situation. Tough to put that into a one-size-fits-all category. And Michael from the,
0: yeah, go ahead, Michael. Job AJ had this year was that, and I think a lot of agents made this mistake because the market was so depressed this year. uh, There were teams trying to sign players to contracts. I know, uh, you know, a lot of teams. Kenny Galladay got offered a huge deal in October uh, by the Detroit Lions. He turned it down because he felt like there was going to be a better market out there in free agency, and that market never showed up. I think sometimes players. This is a challenge for the agent is to convince a player to take a deal when there's no other deal to take. And this market was really, you know, this market was that. That's why we're seeing a lot of one year contracts, because players want to get back into the market again. They want to work, but they want to get back in the market. There's no money in this market right now. And I think the challenge this offseason has been that is to understand when you must take a deal. And when you should pass on a deal, you know, if I were doing a deal with AJ and I knew, you know, there were very few teams that were going to match my number, I would give them, say, AJ, you got three hours to make this deal. If not, it's off the table. Now you're going to.
1: Shifting gears a little bit from the market efficiency side and the and the agency side or the contract side, talk a little bit. uh, And, Mike, I'll start with you from a, a culture standpoint. A lot of organizations and you talk about this, they fail on the culture side. I'm sure, AJ, you've seen that in some of your business. Feelings as well. So Michael, if you talk a little bit about culture building that you've seen in the National Football League and how that might apply to some of the business owners we have in our audience tonight.
0: Well, I, I think the biggest issue is in football is they don't really understand it's about culture. I think that's the hardest thing to get through is everybody thinks it's always about talent, you know, and talent wins, but you need the right talent and the right culture. And so whenever you have so many people involved with the team, uh, making decisions on player acquisitions, the, the the culture element gets lost. You know, it's what do we represent? And when you're represented by a lot of people making decisions, you really don't have a culture. And so there has to be, you know, this isn't the Dave Clark five. This has to be a, a, a paramilitary organization where someone brings the culture in and then everything feeds off of that person and it typically should be the coach. But too often in the NFL, we have too many executives or presidents that want to control the the player procurement, which then affects the culture. It's really challenging to do. The players feel like they don't work for the coach. It becomes a very challenging job. I think this is, you know, why the Dallas Cowboys is as successful as Jerry Jones has been in terms of making money. He's yet to be able to get a culture in that building. Other than when Bill Parcells was there and other than when Jerry J- Jimmy Johnson was there, he's yet to have a culture because he doesn't really want a culture. He wants to be involved. He wants to have that challenging thing to do. And I think in sports, it's even more challenging because everybody wants to say it's, it's, it's an intoxicating business. Everybody wants to be part of a winning, successful team, but they don't understand the culture really matters more.
1: AJ, how about your thoughts on culture building? I mean, you've led numerous businesses, obviously involved in startups and tech. Um, Your thoughts on culture building and sort of how it maybe transcends from sports to regular business.
2: Yeah, I, um, I take great pride in the culture that my brother and I have built across numerous organizations over the last decade plus. I think to Michael's point, the benefit that we had is that my brother has such a big personality and has such strong conviction and beliefs in what he does and has such talent that I think our culture really embodies him. And it's very clear, um, you know, as far as where it stems from, where it comes from, it trickles down from the top. And I think the other benefit is that that culture is one that has a good combination of, you know, work ethic, kindness, innovation. And so I think that's a a dangerous, you know, trio to put together. If you can have something that, you know, you can get a 1000 plus people aligned around the idea of being hardworking, being kind and being innovative, um, there's a lot of good results you can get from that. And so I think to Michael's point, one thing that I found interesting looking from the outside, just being in this agency, whether it's a college program or a professional program, um, I do think sports is even more challenging um, just because you have some dynamics that may not exist in other forms of business. So for example, I think a very interesting dynamic, and it takes a very special coach to accomplish this is for a coach to coach players that make more than the coach financially, right? I think a lot of people will measure power and success from the economics that they earn in an annual year. And, you know, you've got football coaches that are consistently managing and coaching and driving the ship where they have employees that are younger and financially further along. And I think that's a dynamic that is not very common in traditional business that exists in sports. And, you know, you see it quite a bit in basketball, you see it in football. And so I think that's a dynamic that sports, um, I mean, you have players that make more than the GM and the head coach combined. That's a dynamic.
1: I think you see that, too, when coaches, I think, make the transition from college to the National Football League, right? I mean, the college coach certainly is earning significantly more than any of the players. And we could go on that tangent for a little bit. But uh, I'll ask both of you, uh, do you think that that plays a role in certain college coaches having trouble when they transfer over to the National Football League, that dynamic of the finances?
0: I don't know if it's as much the finances as you know when a runs his college program. He doesn't really have anybody getting in his way. He's the general manager. He's the president. He's the owner. The AD barely says a word to him. Colleges, you know, as long as we win and the stadium's full, we're doing good. In in pro, you know, in some owners, they want to have a say in you know in analytics. They want us to to, the the personnel guy is going to work for the owner, and you know the coach works for himself. And there's this constant civil war that's going on i mean in 1984 bill walsh my first draft and i've written this in good iron genius and i say it all the time you know it's we're, we had 12 rounds in one day and it started at five in the morning it went and we're in you know i think we're in round 10 and i was kind of buzzing around the room and he's like what do what you what's your problem and i said well you know he said look michael we're only competing against eight teams you know there's a 28 team league we're only competing against eight this is when we were 28 Said all the other ones, you know, they can't get it right in, internally. They fight a civil war, and and I think that's really what happens more than ever. College coaches don't have that civil war. They right. don't. They, they build their program. They have complete autonomy to do whatever they want. You know, now what I think happens to them a lot of times is they stop coaching football. You know, they got they get hired and they're paid to be the best coach on the staff, and then they stop coaching. They just walk the sidelines, you know, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes they make. Because well, they gotta go to this alumni meeting, they gotta go to this dinner tonight, they gotta do this. If Nick Saban's not doing that, Nick Saban's working on football, you know, Dabo's working on football. So you gotta it's your it's your schedule, it's your calendar, you gotta fix it. College jobs are you know, the University of Texas is is a better job than 10 NFL jobs, you know. Uh, Central Florida. Is probably one of the is a better job than than a lot of a lot of uh, uh, a lot of college jobs and maybe even a few pros. You make really good money. You're going to get kids to go to school there. You're in a conference. I mean, I, I think that the, the NFL is a challenging job because of the civil war that's involved.
1: AJ, your thoughts on the on the college coach making the transition to the NFL from a sort of a business
2: standpoint? Yeah, I think Michael makes a ton of good points. The one thing. I'll throw that I think is going to be really interesting and will shed a light on, you know, what makes it difficult and what doesn't. Is um, I think college coaches' jobs are about to get a lot harder once name, image, and likeness really hits and hits its stride. It's going to take some time. Um, You know, we'll see when it all comes to fruition. But you're going to have players on your in your program making real money. And I think one of the things, from my perspective, that college coaches have the benefit of is they have a little bit of a leash on some star players because they realize that... The star players realize that the coach has the ability to hurt their financial future, right? If you're a kid in the pre-draft process, and if you didn't really follow coach's uh, program, that can hurt your draft stock and that hurts your pocket. When you've got college kids making 6 figures and 7 figures through name, image, and likeness, just monetizing through marketing and endorsements... I think that's going to bring a whole new wrench. And even to Michael's point, it may introduce a bit of a civil war amongst the players that has never really existed in college football. And I think that's going to be a really, really interesting dynamic that'll take three to five years to start to play out. But I think it's going to be there.
1: It's interesting that you brought up name, image, and likeness. I actually had on my podcast, Chip Lamarca, the Florida state representative who introduced the name, image, likeness bill that was passed here in the state of Florida. I think we were the first state... To pass that bill just ahead of California. Uh, and, yeah. and I think you're right. I think you're going to have major changes coming when, as those laws start to become more prevalent in various states. We got our first um, audience question here. And I want to remind everybody who's listening if you're watching on the YouTube channel, you can use the chat box there to ask a question. So here's the first question What's your point of view of matching cap and cash versus pushing cap charges into the future through upfront signing bonuses and roster bonuses? I'll, I'll put that to you first, Mike. You want me to repeat that?
0: <laughs> no, I got it. I, you know, cash to cap—that's that, an interesting conversation. So really, that—that that never is going to be consistent, right? Because uh, you know, your cash expenditure one year is always going to be higher than what your cap is, and so eventually, over a four-year period, it should it should level out. What I think you really want to make sure you don't do is you want to be able to give yourself a chance to uh, to not overextend yourself and be always doing the what I call the wimpy thing, you know, gladly pay Tuesday for a hamburger today. When you get into that wimpy thing in the, in the NFL, you get into a lot of cap trouble. The Rams have done it. They've been able to get through it because Kroenke's spending a lot of cash over cap. But at the end of the day, no matter who the owner is, he wants to basically in four years have his cash aligned with his cap just by the system the way it's going to do it. So w- when you look at it on a 1 year basis on a light item basis, you know, 1 year you're going to be cash over cap. The Cowboys for example, the last 3 years have been below the the ca- ca- cash over cap, but now this year because of Dak's contract, they'll go way over. It always evens out. You just can't make a living going over that number. What you can't make right. a living doing is is making mistakes. You can't do that. You can't have Jared Goff traded. You can't have all these you know, J- Carson Wentz. And then someone, you can't have 50 million of money taken away from your cap, you know, th- because this cap's going to go way up. It's going to continue to go up and the players are going to get a lot of revenue from it. But at the end of the day, as this cap has increased, there's really not enough talent to really eat the cap up. I've always contended the head coach's salary should be in the cap. He should be part of the cap as well, because they should be paid more because they're running a multi a, a 300 million dollar cap let's say you know they're running it they should be part of it but you know that that's something that's a hard for the people to really understand
1: cap issues Did what's we, that as a AJ, aj your thoughts on, oh, the, on the same question yeah no worries yeah. on the, on yeah, the cap issues
2: um yeah i think michael covered a lot of the ground i think um it It goes actually also back to the whole concept of uh, must have, want, and need. I think um, you know there's a lot of mechanics that could be utilized to push the cap charges down. I think you're seeing it a lot this year. Feel as if the um, you know the the extra years added for the void years, excuse me, uh, were used more this year than a lot of other years. But you've seen other teams utilize it. I think uh, on the agent side of things, depending on the player that you're representing. You're going to hear that so for example if you have a blue chip player i think the team is going to figure it out and they're going to use void years and whatever they need to do to get under the cap if they feel like you're a must-have if you're a want you know this might have not been the year to be a want just given the cap issues and that's maybe why you're seeing a lot of um a uh excuse me if you're in need you know this might not been the year and you might have lost out compared to other years and if you're a want you know oh cap issues you know it's a luxury we're we got cap issues but I think if there's, you know, a player that is truly uh, upper echelon, the, the owner, you know, depending on the owner, um, Michael made the point about the Rams owner, there's other owners. That's the big point is you just need an owner that's willing to spend the money um, at that level in order to have the cash go over the cap. And that's when you can get into void years and things like that. So I think it, it speaks back to the point we were talking about earlier in terms of the different levels of players. And I think that really speaks to how the cap versus the cash goes down. Case by case
1: so one of the things that I think that came up earlier it might have been from Michael was that the caps going to go way up eventually, and so we saw some spending sprees here in free agency early obviously the Patriots were the were the big one I wondering if Michael start with you and then over to AJ are what are we seeing these spending sprees because teams like the Patriots are seeing that they may look like big spending sprees today, but in the future there's going to be this this significantly larger amount of money that's going to help make up the difference. I was wondering if you could speak to that.
0: I think the Patriots' really concern is the 2022 cap. Of everything they did this year with the cap room, they had to make sure that whatever the contracts they did, uh, they had enough going into next year and that they could sign draft picks in 2022, but also keep the players and not have to redo deals in 2022. We know the cap will go up slightly, not as much as people are suspecting, but in 2023, the cap's going to go way up. I mean, it's going to get back to normal, assuming everybody gets the Johnson & Johnson shot, and we have people in the stands and all that, you know, and revenue's coming in. So, uh, you know, that's you have to have a 12-month and a 24-month cap strategy. I think most teams will have that. Uh, and you got to be right. I mean, you, you got to have the personnel guys got it right. You got to find two or three college free agents every year that, that you have for four years a cheap number. You got to hit on a mid level pick. You know, you got to hit on the, the second round picks are the most vital picks to hit on because you get a four year contract that are really economically friendly. And those guys should be starters. I mean, if you could trade, you know, your first round pick for, five, for three twos, you should do it every year. They're just really good, solid players. You don't get Mel Kuyper eyes because you take a guy in the second round that Mel thinks you should have taken, you know, early. If you take a guy in the first and Mel doesn't like it, you got to listen to him bitch for an hour, you know. And so you, you just basically you can you can kind of use your draft the way you want to do it. So. Uh, not that I think Mel's right. And I and certainly don't. But I'm just saying he's got a platform to complain about it. And then you got to listen to it. And then it just it drives the story. You know, it does. It's like it, the, the greatest thing of all is people make fun of these. De- the Patriots overpaid. Patriots overpaid. Yeah, the Patriots overpaid. Right. But do you even know what the deals are? AK doesn't give the deal to Adam Schefter what the real deal is. He he gives it what it can earn mostly so he can help his business. Right when the deal's coming, Cam Newton signed for 14 million. When you look at the deal, it's three and a half. But all we remember, was signed four, right? Right, it's the narrative. and so the part of the whole conversation is to make sure you can control the narrative. And by having second round picks, you do a much better job, which helps your cap going forward.
2: And AJ, yeah, Michael, from the- makes, yeah, Michael makes a great point. Something that we don't really partake in, but is rampant in our industry is what I like to call monopoly money. You know, it was, I think, a 50-something million dollar contract He was cut after one year because of the structure of the deal. And so I think that's a big part of it. Um, As far as the cap goes, you know, I think from the agent's perspective, this year was a tough year from a cap perspective. Next year should be better. And then not only is next year better, but to Michael's point, you know, expecting that big lift two years from now, next year is better, but it's also one year closer to a big spike. So it's even double better in that regard. If double better counts as a term.
1: <laughs> so we've got a couple of questions and then I'll get you guys out of here. I know we have to be done by 8.14, I promised Michael. Um, so one one of the questions is, um, why do you guys, What either one of you, why do you think teams are going younger and making their coaching decisions? I mean, we're certain, certainly seeing that trend and someone in the audience asked the question. I'll I'll put it to both of you. I'll
0: let Michael go I first. Mean, I think he's
2: better suited
0: to answer it. I think that the, you know, look, when you want to, When you want to have control of your organization, you hire inexperience. You don't want somebody to tell you no. You know, you want somebody to come in that's going to do what you want them to do. Uh, Experience in the NFL is nobody cares about it. They don't care about it. You know, it's that, you know, I'm probably more qualified to be a GM today than I ever was in my life. But I'm too old. You know, I I got too much experience. I would tell somebody he's full of crap. That's not a smart thing to do. They don't want that. They want, you know, they want a lot of background singers. And so when you want background singers, you're going to have people that that are young and they're going to be willing to learn and they're going to be willing. To, you got to live with their mistakes. I mean, I think Sean McVay is one of the best coaches in all of football. He's a young coach, but he's made a lot of mistakes. They're willing to grow with them. He's made a lot of mistakes in personnel. You know, we can go through it. Stan, Jarrett Jared Goff's contract, Brandon Cook's Todd Gurley. You know, there's a lot of money walking out the door, but he's a really good coach. But will you pay a price for an experience, you know, Peggy Noonan wrote a column uh, years ago about, uh, you know, we've outpriced experience. And I think she's right about that. And I think the NFL, it's cheaper to go younger. And it's also to to be able to get people to do what you want is easier to have somebody who's younger, won't rock the boat. AJ, you have any thoughts on the trend?
2: Yeah, I think another aspect, I think what Michael says is fair. I think another aspect, too, is just human nature. Um, as a society, overvalues the unknown. I think we always look at draft picks, right? Like yeah. we're constantly looking at how great they can be. Um, but, you know, more likely than not, they'll, they won't reach that ceiling. There's only so many transcendent players or transcendent coaches. And I think the other point I'll make too is in the NFL, in sports, mistakes are unavoidable. So from, I think, an owner's perspective, if there's like this, really alluring, young, hot coaching candidate that you could see could be the next McVeigh, so to speak. Um, you know, There's plenty of coaches with 10, 15, 20 years of experience that make just as many mistakes. I mean, you've got front offices and, and coaching staffs with massive experience that make an enormous amount of mistakes. You can't not make mistakes in this business. It's, it's too much of an art, not enough of science in a lot of ways when it comes to personnel. So
1: something that you mentioned that struck me is you talked about mistakes, AJ, and I'm wondering if you could address this a lot of times people are reluctant to admit their mistakes. And I think we see that in sports quite a bit. But from a business perspective, can you talk a little bit about maybe the importance of not only acknowledging the mistake, but maybe moving on from it?
2: Yeah, I would say my... I say this all the time internally to my company because we're, you know, we're a startup and we're fast growing. You know, we're less than five years old. We're up to four different sports, 70-something clients. Like We're moving quick. And we're making mistakes. It's impossible not to make mistakes. But my personal motto is the only mistake that really bothers me is the mistake you don't learn from, right? So I'm big on, okay, we made a mistake. Let's not move on per se. Like, of course, we want to move on mentally, but let's digest what happened. Let's have a grown-up conversation about what happened. And let's figure out a game plan so we don't make that mistake again. Because if you're an organization that doesn't allow history to repeat itself from a mistake perspective, you're only going to get exponentially better. I think, um, I also think that people appreciate when people are willing to admit their mistakes. I think it's um, when a CEO or a leader admits that they made a mistake, I think it garners the respect of an employee or a client. I think the nice thing for most privately held businesses that a sports team does not have the luxury of is when I make a mistake in my advertising business, in my venture capital business, in my sports agency, you know, as long as it's not too egregious, that's not showing up on, you know, the front page of the newspaper, it's not trending on Twitter. If you're a GM and you whiff on a first round pick, you never hear, you know, uh, Michael mentioned Mel Kiper. It gets even worse than that when it ends up actually being bad, right? And so I think that's a tough thing for sports executives that you are just getting hammered. And then, you know, depending on the town, if it's a small town or a passionate fan base, you can't even go out to dinner without hearing it, right? And so that's tough.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially like if you're the GM that drafted, you know, I don't know, Mitchell Trubisky ahead of Patrick Mahomes.
0: Um, Michael, yeah, I, get, <laughs> I, get blamed, I get blamed for drafting Jamarcus Russell, you know, and I wasn't even in the room. I got idiots on Twitter that say, you know, what are you talking about quarterbacks for? You drafted Jamarcus Russell. And I'm like, look, dude, <laughs> that wasn't even in the room. So, like, don't even go there. You can't, you know, you can, you one thing you can't do is win on Twitter. You can't, those, those people are geniuses with the racers, you know, and yeah. so you you can't but you're right. I think the one thing you have to do as a leader is especially in the sports industry is because if you live off your mistakes you'll you'll die. So what you have to do instead of making fun of Ryan Pace and what he did with Mitchell Trubisky, which I have made a, a lot of fun of, but I'm outside the league and I get paid to critique it is to really why did he make that mistake? Like analyze where he went wrong. If you go back and listen to his evaluation of of Trubisky, he was wrong from the beginning. I mean, everything he evaluated was completely wrong. And so you as an executive, you constantly have to analyze the mistakes by other teams, not to make fun of them, not not to, you know, not to, uh, you know, Ben Bradley used to tell everybody at the Washington Post, don't gloat, don't gloat, you know, because he didn't want after, even after they had Watergate and they broke the, don't gloat. You don't want to gloat that you didn't make it, but you want to learn from it. And I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, I think that's critical. I think in any business or whatever you're doing, it's important to learn from your mistakes and make sure that you acknowledge them as opposed to just sort of letting your ego get in the way, right? I mean, ego is the enemy. I think we've all that's sort right. of talked about that. Uh, look, I think this is a great place to cut it off. I want to make sure I get you guys out of here on time and respect your time. So first of all, thank you to both of you for doing this. I'm super appreciative, both personally, I think the Wharton Club is appreciative as well. Thank you to Wharton for putting on this event, the Wharton Club of South Florida, all the attendees, and especially thank you to Sports Epreneur. Make sure you check those guys out. You can find them on on the internet at sports, E-S-P-O-R-T-S-E dot I-O. Great company, great people. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you to our panelists. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks. I want to thank Michael and AJ, as well as the Wharton School of Business Alumni Association for putting on the event and for doing the show and for allowing this to be our season premiere. Two amazing guests who have been really great friends of the show and two individuals that uh, I'm very grateful to to call friends. So as you probably know, the show's, name, the show's name changed. It's now the quarter four podcast, not game seven. Still the same great content, great guests. So thank you everyone for listening. And of course... If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. And hopefully, if you really liked it, you could leave a five-star rating. It really helps us, especially with Apple Podcasts. So stay tuned, everyone. We're going to be putting out some great episodes for 2021. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll speak to everybody soon. Thank you so much, everybody.